Chapter Five of Serapion by Francis Stevens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Serapion, Chapter Five, The Fifth Presence. The difference between light and the lack of it is the difference between freedom and captivity, and the real reason that we pity a blind man is because he is a prisoner. This is true under normal conditions. Add to darkness dread of the supernatural, and the inevitable sum is panic. Till that moment I doubt if Roberta or I had believed the black hand which touched her to be of other than natural origin. Ingrained thought-habit had accused more of trickery even while it condemned the trick as unpleasant. That was why the light burned. One instant later we were trapped prisoners of the dark, and instincts century-old flung off thought-habit like a tissue-cloak. What had been a quiet modern room became, in that instant, the devil-haunted jungle of forebears infinitely remote. And it didn't help matters that just then Horace elected to be heard again. Alicia visible, Horace had seemed a vocal feat on her part. Alicia unseen, Horace became a discarnate fiend. That he was a fiend, vulgar and incongruous, only made his fiendishness more intolerable. "'How's this for a joke?' it inquired sardonically. "'I never did like that lamp. Let's give it away, Jimmy. Tell your young fool friend to take the lamp away with him.' Soundlessly, without warning, something hard and slightly warm touched my cheek. I struck out wildly. My fist crashed through glass, there was a great smash and clatter from the floor, and mingled it with shout upon shout of fairly maniacal mirth. Then Moore's voice, cool but irritated. "'You'll have to stop these tricks, Horace. I'm ashamed of you. Breaking a valuable lamp like that? Our guests will believe you a common spirit of poltergeist.' More, if you don't throw on the lights, I'll kill you for this." My own voice shook with mingled rage and dread. Of course, it might be he who had brought the lamp and held it against my face, but the very senselessness of the trick made it terrible in a queer, unhuman way. "'Stand still,' he commanded sharply. "'Barber, Miss Whittingfield, you are not children. Nothing will harm you if you keep quiet.' It was your own yielding to anger and fear that brought this crude force into play. Did it really hit you with the lamp, Barber?" I hit the lamp, but exactly. Now keep quiet. Horace, may I turn on the lights? If you do, you'll be sorry, Jimmy. Call me poltergeist or plain Dutch, there's somebody worse than me here tonight. What do you mean, Horace? Oh, somebody that came in along with your scared young friends. He's a joker, too, but I don't like him. He wants to get through the gates altogether and stay through. If he does, a lot of people will be sorry. You say I'm rough, but say, Jimmy, this fellow is worse than rough. He's smooth. Get me? Too smooth. I'm keeping him back, and you know I'm stronger in the dark." Very well, I heard Moore laugh amusedly. His quiet matter-of-courseness should have deleted all terror from the affair. 
He was carrying on a conversation with a rather silly, rather vulgar man, of whom he was not afraid, but whose vagaries he indulged for reasons of expediency. That was the sound of it. But the sense of it, there in the blackness, was such an indescribable horror to me as I cannot convey by words. There was more to this feeling than fear of Horace. I learned what nerves meant that night. If mine had all been on the outside of my skin, crowling, expectant of shock, I could have suffered no more keenly. Coward? Wait to judge that till you learn what the uncomprehended expectancy meant for me. Very well, laughed Moore, but don't break any more lamps, Horace, please. Have some consideration for my pocketbook. Money! We haven't any pants pockets on my side of the line, Horace chuckled. If I'm to keep the smooth fellow back, you must let me use my strength. Let me have my fun, Jimmy. What's a lamp or so between pals? And just to keep things interesting, suppose we bring out the big fellow in the closet. I heard a thud from the direction of the cabinet, a low chuckle, and then a huge panting sound. It sounded like an enormous animal. We had a sense of something living and enormous that had suddenly come out of nothing into the room. "'The hand!' screamed Roberta sharply. "'It's the black hand thing!' I was hideously afraid that she was right. With her own clutching little hands on my arm, I sprang, dragging her with me. I didn't spring for where I thought more was, nor for where I supposed the door might be. There were only two thoughts in my head one of a monstrous and wholly imaginary black giant, the other a passionate desire for light. By pure chance I brought up against the wall just beside a brass plate inset with two magical blessed buttons. My fingers found them. Got the wrong button, the right one. Flash! And we were out of demonland and in a commonplace room again. Not quite commonplace, though. True, no black, impossible giant inhabited it. The vast panting sound had passed, and though the lamp lay among the splinters of its wrecked shade and my hand was bleeding, a broken lamp and a cut hand are possible incidentals of the ordinary. But that woman in the chair was not. Writhing, shrieking, foaming creatures like that have their place in a hospital, or a sick man's delirium, but not rightfully in an evening's entertainment for two unexpected young people. Bert took one look and buried her face against my vest in an ecstasy of fear. Moore was beside his wife, swiftly unclasping the steel manacles that held her, but finding time for a glaring side-glance at me which expressed white-hot and concentrated rage. I didn't understand. Alicia's previous spasms or seizures, though less violent than this, had been bad enough. Why should Moore eye me like that? when, if anyone had a right to be furious, it was I. "'The lights,' moaned Bert against my vest. "'You turned on the lights, and it hurt her. "'I've read that somewhere. "'Oh, Clay, why don't you do something to help her "'and make her stop that horrible screaming?' Moore heard and turned again, snarling. "'You get out of here, Barber. "'You've done harm enough.' "'Shan't I—' "'Shan't we call a doctor?' I stammered. He didn't answer. Released, Alicia had subsided limply, a black heap in the chair, face on knees. The gurgling shrieks had lowered to a series of long, agonizing moans. I thought she was dying, 
and in a confused way I felt that both Roberta and Moore blamed me. The moans, too, had ceased. Was she dead? Now Moore was trying to lift his wife out of the chair and failing for some reason. Instinctively I pushed Roberta aside and moved to help him. And then, at last, that happened for which all the rest had been a prelude, for which my whole life had been a prelude, as I was to learn one day. There came—how can I phrase it? It was not a darkness, for I saw. It was not a vacuum, for most certainly I, every one of us, continued to breathe. It was like—you know what happens sometimes in a thunderstorm? There is a hushed moment, when it is as if a mighty invisible being had drawn in its breath—not breath of air, but of force. If you live in the suburbs and have alternating current, the lights go out, as if the current had been sucked back. Static has the upper hand of kinetic. A moment, and kinetic will rebel in a blinding, crashing river of fire from sky to earth. But till then, between earth and clouds, there is a tension so terrific that it gives the awful sense of a void. That happened in the room where we stood, though the force involved was not the physical one of electricity. There was the hushed moment, the sense of awful tension, of void, of strength sucked back like the current. Without knowing how, I became aware that all the life in the room was suddenly, dreadfully centralizing around one of us. That one was Alicia. I saw Moore move back from her. He had gone ghastly pale, and he waved his hands queerly. The straining sense of void which was also centralization increased. A numbness crept over me. The invisible had drawn in its breath of pure force, and my life was undoubtedly a part of it. There came a stirring of the black heap in the chair. Inexplicably, I felt as well as saw it as if, standing by the wall, I was also in the chair. Roberta shivered. She was out of my sight, standing slightly behind me, but I felt that too. No two of us there were in physical contact, and yet some strange interfusion of consciousness was linking us more closely than the physical. Again Alicia stirred. She cried out inarticulately. The centralization was around her, but not by her will. I felt a surge of resentment that was not mine, but Alicia's. Then I knew that there were more than four of us present in the room. A fifth was here, invisible, strong, unifying the strength of us all for its own purpose, for a leap across the intangible barriers and into the living world. Numbness was on me, cold dread, and a sense of some danger peculiarly personal to myself. It was coming. Now. Now. With another cry Alicia shot suddenly erect. Her arms went out in a wide sweep that seemed to be struggling in an attempt to push something from her. "'Serapian!' she cried, and, "'You! Back! Go back! Go back! Go back! Oh, you, Serapian!' When kinetic revolts against static, blinding fire results. The tension in that room let go as suddenly as the lightning stroke, though I was the only one to feel it fully. My body reeled against the wall. My spirit, I, the ego, reeled with it, beyond it, 
down, down, into darkness absolute, and into a nullity deeper than darkness itself. End of chapter 5